Isn't it great to be a Christian and to be able to appreciate all the blessings and benefits that God offers to those who are His children? Indeed, as was mentioned a moment ago in prayer, how thankful we are for the opportunity granted to us this morning and yet the, again this afternoon to assemble and do so with the express purpose of worshiping in spirit and in truth. You may have noted in the actual bulletin in terms of the announcement of the title for the lesson tonight, it is the same one on the wall to my left, Knowing God. I, it is my hope, if all works in the way that I trust it shall, this will be a bit of a series of lessons in terms of appreciating you and me and our desire to know God. I would submit that, quite frankly, the lesson in terms of the series won't be terribly lengthy. I believe tonight you and I will look in some detail at the characteristics attached to the knowledge of God, seeking to appreciate, based on some important scriptures, why that's so needful. One of the other features of knowing God, though, seems to surround directly the attribute of His name. So I'll just, in fact, ask you to contemplate that the next lesson, I hope on Sunday evening, will be a development based on the Word of God, of the name of God. What about His name? Should we use it or not? And if so, what is it? I'll leave that until the next lesson. For tonight, what about the emphasis placed upon a knowledge of God? Knowing God, you and I shall learn tonight, is of exceedingly great importance. Let's use this opening slide to motivate some of those initial thoughts like this. The emphasis placed in the, in the Bible upon the knowledge of God begins with some passages, in fact, deep in the Old Testament. In Hosea, you might even notice in the first three verses of chapter 6, we appreciate the fact that God painted a picture. The admonition to the ancient people of Israel at that time was that they were to know God, but sadly, they had erred because they had failed. Their knowledge of Him was not as it ought to have been, and for that, they were admonished to return to Him. We find in Jeremiah 31... The passage we shall revisit later in the lesson again tonight because a moment ago as it was read in our hearing, Brother Joy read to us from Hebrews the 8th chapter. That text quoted Jeremiah 31. And you'll notice the very statement in this centerpiece was this, Know the Lord. It was admonished upon them that there would come a time in a dispensation when it would not be necessary to plea for men to know the Lord for everybody would know Him. You and I realize that was a messianic passage looking down the stream of time until the gospel ministration. Today, we're the beneficiaries of that. May I submit, we ought to, above all peoples who have ever lived, know the Lord. And we ought to appreciate what the Scriptures teach us about all the benefits and the rewards and blessings that come with it. As you come to the close of that slide, let's begin with a question then. So how does one know the Lord? And what is involved in that knowledge? First, let's begin like this with a few more passages of Scripture. If you have your Bible, I'll encourage you to follow along as we look at a number of verses that remind us of the importance of knowing the Lord and what happens if one does not know Him. Let's begin like this. That book of wisdom so often highlighted in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, the first ten chapters or so of that book is a manifest consideration of the wisdom that comes with what wisdom directs. And you'll notice in the midst of that, in chapter 2, verse 5, is this statement. 
it speaks about the fact that those who fear the Lord will in fact increase in their knowledge of Him. And immediately we encounter this blessedness that comes with what wisdom is. And one who is wise will seek to know God. Directly we can conclude one who then is not wise will not seek to know God. I realize that I stand before an audience who does desire to know God and who've often directed attention toward that goal. But you'll notice there that those who pursue that, those who seek to understand God and that seek that knowledge of Him are wise. How wonderful it is to have that kind of wisdom. Surely that line of wisdom leads you to notice this warning found in the heart of the New Testament. Knowing God... Titus 1 verse 16 says that there were some in that day who professed that they knew God. They claimed that they knew Him, but Paul was direct in saying, in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and to every good work reprobate. Isn't it amazing that on that occasion, here were some individuals who claimed that they knew God, but their works denied it. Their works did not follow that which they proclaimed. To put that in language which you and I have no doubt often heard, they didn't practice what they preached. The message that they foretold or that which they hearkened to by way of their speaking did not harmonize with the truth of the matter. They professed to know God, but really they didn't. Isn't that a shame to at least have the mentality of thinking you do, but really you don't? You and I need to be on guard then and oh, how the world needs to appreciate the magnitude of such a lesson as that matter. Let us go from that to the next one. As we develop this somewhat more thoroughly, let us look at a few of the examples of the Old Testament where God expressly used this phrase, knowing God, and often used it in a very sad way. Why don't we start in Micah 4 verse 12. There were those of Micah's day who, despite the fact they ought to have had knowledge of God, they didn't. That sadness goes on in the chapters that follow to state for us what would befall that people. Remember earlier on in that very book, you and I recollect the sadness that came with the people's failures. They didn't serve God. Despite the fact they had His law, they didn't know Him. From that text, go to this one in Isaiah 45, 5. That passage, it is very brief. We find in it a number of thoughts worthy of consideration, not the least of which is there is but one God. He is such that there is none else beside Him. But then He closes that verse by saying, They didn't know me. You and I may again find that astounding. Individuals to whom the very message of God's revelation at the Mount Sinai had been given, and yet God says they didn't know me. Let us look at one more. In addition to Isaiah 45, it seems to me one of the strongest passages touching this subject must be Jeremiah chapter 9. Let me encourage you to listen as we look at the first three verses of that chapter. In it we find a very tragic, in fact, almost overtly sad statement in verse number 3. Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, 
that I might leave my people and go from them, for they be all adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. And they bend their tongues like their bow for lies, but they are not valiant for truth upon the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they know not me, saith the Lord. Now that was a description of the ancient people of Judah. By that time, Assyria had already taken over the northern kingdom of Israel. That was God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah. And God says, they're, they're valiant, all right, but not for truth. And sadly enough, He says, they go from one evil to the next, and they do not know Me. That kind of passage almost is enough to make you and me appreciate there must have been a proverbial tear streaming down the face of God that His own people didn't know Him. From that development, notice what you and I can appreciate. Maybe we'd be quick to say that these Old Testament passages paint a very serious picture. But what about us today in the New Testament? In Colossians 1 verse 10, written to the church in Colossae, a New Testament epistle, Paul in that statement wrote to them and highlighted the increasing knowledge of God that they enjoyed. Here was a first century congregation and Paul commended them because of their knowledge of God increasing from day to day. What about you and me? Does our knowledge of God increase? Are we heightening in our maturity of appreciation for God and for that which is His true nature? Knowing God. Maybe one final consideration. I save this one to the last observation on this slide due to the great warning presented within it. It's a passage we've so often noted, but yet this first portion of its consequence is so very chilling. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on who? On them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy enough to cast a spotlight upon the impressive requirement of, of obeying the gospel, and that verse presents it. But by the same token, doesn't it say, knowledge of God is vital. And if we don't know Him, it appears certain to say that heaven cannot be our home. What about then knowing God? I believe we've looked at enough passages reminding us of the importance of it. Let's continue the journey. Some of the basic considerations then about knowing God would lead us to this. As we start in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, we appreciate that we find God mentioned at the very outset of the Word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. At that moment of creation, when you and I read the various and sundry presentations of the opening chapters of that book, we are reminded certainly of God's greatness, the ability of Him to create. But let's cast the spotlight for just a moment on the Word. That word God is plural in that first verse in the Bible. You and I remember that the thought of something being plural means that there's more than one. When we use the plural, typically in English, there's an S on the end of those words, at least if they're nouns. Rather than speaking of a cat, if it's plural, there are cats with an S on the end of it. Well, in that particular passage, the Hebrew word for God is plural, identifying immediately there was more than one entity or more than one being under description 
as the events of Genesis chapter 1 proceeded, there was more than one being there. Not only in chapter 1 verse 1, but quickly notice a host of other verses. Chapter 1 verse 3, chapter 1 verse 5, and all those instances and many others as well in that chapter, you find that when that word God appears, the Hebrew word is plural. In chapter 2 verse 7, that same saga appears to continue almost unabated. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. It's plural again. You'll notice the creative activity with me here references more than one being involved in that creation. Surely in light of those things, you'll notice a few quick observations or comments. First of all, as we've stated already, more than one being involved. But that development leads us to note this. The word God apparently and easily enough refers to each of them. All of those beings are God. Before we go much further, note the last one. You and I perhaps have often heard this word Godhead. And with due fairness, because that's a biblical term. The Apostle Paul used it in Colossians 2 verse 9. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There Paul used that word in reference to the totality of God. In fact, I would ask you to notice, it is a reference to that which has the being or the state of God. Paul used that word Godhead. So that takes us back to Genesis 1. Who were these beings that were God? comprising this Godhead. Maybe in that development, we should quickly point out the following. There is one God. I now realize there are some in the world who would directly accuse you and me of believing in many gods, but we do not. It's just that we appreciate the following. The Bible teaches us by the usage of that word Godhead in many of these verses we're about to see that there is more than one entity or being that possesses the attributes of deity. There is one God. Paul fully believed in that thought, didn't he? In fact, in Ephesians 4, verse number 6, he says, There is one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. One God, as Paul there identified and described Him in that location. This oneness, this uniqueness of God helps us then appreciate that in some ways you and I might think that this reference identifies the name of a family. It's as though there is this name God and then there are several members of that family, all of whom are deity, all of whom are divine, and all of whom can be referenced as God. Well, how many members are there then of that family? How many beings are there that possess these attributes of divinity? As you and I come to this one, there is God the Father. And you'll notice I've added an additional description. There is God, but He so often in the Bible is called very carefully the Father. Let's describe Him using the Word of God for just a few minutes. God the Father. In John 6 verse 27, as Jesus Himself, while walking in the flesh upon earth, it was He who on so many occasions referenced God the Father. 
You might even go ahead and notice the very last observation on that slide. Very interesting that the gospel according to John makes a highlighted emphasis of the Father. 69 times in that single gospel account, God the Father is referenced. Far more than either Matthew, Mark, or Luke. When you and I think about God the Father, we might immediately observe that He is described in the Scriptures as having a very interesting set of qualities and characteristics, not the least of which is this one. In 1 Peter 1 verse 2, God the Father is said to possess all foreknowledge. He's the one apparently who can appreciate so easily what you and I would recognize as the future. He has foreknowledge. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Time is no bound by any means to Him. It is He who possesses the fullness of that knowledge of what you and I would recognize as future events, occurrences, or times. God the Father. Not only that attribute of God, notice, as we stated just a moment ago, He is above all and through all and in you all. This God the Father is then the supreme character one who is above all. And that phrase is very interesting, isn't it? Above all carries the idea of ultimate preeminence. It carries the thought of ultimate zenith and pinnacle of being, God the Father. This attribute of God the Father takes you to the next one. For so often in those 69 verses we noted in John a moment ago, there is something very specific that this God the Father did. He sent, S-E-N-T. And specifically, He sent the Son. That Son was sent with the attribute of acquiring redemption or making it possible for the human family. He was sent to carry out the will of God, John 6, 38. He was sent to do that and He understood it. For He even Himself admitted, I came not to do mine own will. The very express purpose for which I came was to do His will, the Father's will. When the Son made that statement, isn't it true He highlighted the fact that the Father had sent Him? Maybe we can identify it like this. This God the Father, as you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, that same thought is reiterated later in 1 John 4.14. The careful and very noteworthy way in which He sent the Son. Maybe as you look at that, there are a few more thoughts I would ask you to notice, but we're going to develop them in the following way. There's also God the Son. Now this is very distinct in that the Bible makes a careful observation that these two are to be understood as distinct. Now both members of that same family known as God. However, God the Son you notice was one of those members there present in Genesis chapter 1. How do we know that? We know it from John chapter 1 among other reasons. We find as John opened his gospel account there in the first few verses of chapter 1, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there we notice this Word, Jesus Christ, as we learn in verse 14 of that chapter, this Word was God. So, we've now learned another member who was their president in Genesis chapter 1. It was God the Son. 
And this son, as you and I will quickly notice, on many occasions in the Bible is clearly identified as God. He does possess the attributes of deity. He does possess the fullness of that which is the matters of divine character. Among verses that seem so powerful toward that goal, I've chosen only two. In Zechariah 13, one in the Old Testament, there was a passage on that occasion reminding us that the one who is the fellow, that is fellow God, is described in prophecy. The thing is, that passage is quoted directly later in light of Jesus and directly it's applied to Him. And so Jesus is fellow God. He does possess all the attributes of deity. 1 John 5 verse 20 expressly states He is God. Maybe in light of all those things, you'll notice something. A while ago, we learned that the Father apparently is the grand designer. He's above all. He's the one with all foreknowledge. But notice the Son is the one who executes those plans. God the Father designs. God the Son executes. He carries out that which is the will of that Father. And He does so with all the grandeur and fullness worthy of His God, Godship. Look at these verses with me if you would. Colossians 1 paints a wonderful story. We noted verses 10 and 11 just a minute ago. Jump down in that chapter to verse 16 and 17. We notice on that occasion statements themselves describing God the Son. Notice what's said about the Son. Again, Colossians chapter 1, verse number 16. Speaking of the Son, the following comment is made. For by Him were all things created. That Him refers to God the Son. By Him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. We notice then the one who literally, it seems, carried out those plans of creation was the Son. He put into practice that which was the will of the Father, even with respect to creation. Not only that, you'll notice verse 17 highlights, by Him all things consist. You and I live in a marvelous universe. We see even in the small range here on earth the grandeur and complexity of it. And we notice on that occasion that it is by the Christ, by the Son, that all of it subsists. It's held together. It proceeds on its way that you and I would call scientifically. God the Son does that. When you think with me about some of those attributes such as those fine principles that we often embed in the hearts and minds of our students like the conservation of energy, that doesn't happen accidentally. It's happened because the Son mandates it so in an ongoing basis in His creation. Not only that, you'll notice that Son is highlighted so wonderfully because of His willingness and humility to execute in fullness that plan of the Father, the plan of human redemption. Look, for instance, in John 17, verses 11 and 22. 
that was the very occasion when our Savior prayed to God in Gethsemane that night, the very day prior to His crucifixion. And He prayed, Father, that the world, the, those that believe in Me, would be one just as I and You are one. The two are completely harmoniously united. One indeed. That oneness, you and I will appreciate, leads us to 1 Timothy 3.16. There we find that Son then in the embodiment of the flesh was the manifestation of God in the flesh. That's an amazing concept, isn't it? That amazing character leads you to a host of other passages highlighting this work, the role then the Son carries out in an ongoing basis spiritually. He is the only mediator between God and man. The only one. 1 Timothy 2.5 There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That son, by virtue of the fact that he lived sinlessly upon earth, and he died, of course, sinlessly as well. He being fully human and fully God, he can serve as the one and only mediator, seeing both sides of that coin. He appreciates the human side, but the God side as well. The nature of the Son presented that way leads us to ask, are there any other members of that family of God spoken of in Genesis chapter 1? Are there other attributes, are there other beings possessing these qualities and characteristics of deity? We've seen God the Father and now God the Son. But the Word of God isn't finished. There's also God the Spirit. Let's develop that one as we come near the bottom of that slide. For we quickly learn that just as surely as the Son was also present in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit was too. In Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2, we just need to continue our reading from where we left off before. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was also there. That was long before human beings had been created. That was before the creation of those other beings called the animals, if you please. But we find that God the Spirit was also there. And you'll notice that reference to God the Spirit immediately begs the question. It's called the Spirit of God, highlighting for us the fact that that Spirit is also God. Are there other verses that share that same message? Oh, yes. I've selected but one. What about the fifth chapter of the book of Acts? As that chapter opens, we're reminded so easily about the prestige and the explosiveness of the New Testament church. Wasn't it true on that occasion that Ananias and Sapphira, they made a fatal mistake? They sinned, of course. But even when given the opportunity of repentance, they refused it. But you may remember as Peter confronted them, he made this statement, you've lied to God. And then in the next verse, he identified you lied to the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the Holy Spirit is God. That Holy Spirit, the one that you and I see lifted so highly, the King James translation often calls Him the Holy Ghost. He too is God. We've then seen at this point God the Father and God the Son, and now God the Spirit. All three are deity. All three are God. As we think about that Spirit, there is more, though, that we need to say about Him. 
For keep in mind, if you would, quickly, we have seemingly seen that God the Father, He's the one who designs. God the Son, He is the one who executes. What's the work of God the Spirit? What does He do? And how does He carry it out? Let's develop it perhaps like this. The Word of God apparently presents for us that the one who carries out the marvelous work of revelation, namely revealing the things of God, revealing the plans of God, revealing the will of God, it is the Spirit that does that. All three of these members of the Godhead work in marvelous unity and in marvelous harmony. But have you ever stopped to think with me about how sweet it is to contemplate the beauty of what the Spirit does? He reveals. How would we ever know things of God if the Spirit didn't inform us? After all, don't we read in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 11? I'll especially ask you to appreciate with me verses 8 and 9. My ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, and my ways higher than yours. It would be impossible for you and me to think on the plane or level of God unless He told us what to think and how to think and how to behave. And thankfully the Spirit has revealed that to you and to me. In fact, even in the days of the Old Testament, we still appreciate that wonderful revelation of the Spirit. Maybe the clearest passage we encounter on this is in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. Please turn there as we read a section of that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and listen to how the Spirit is so powerfully presented to us on that occasion. 1 Corinthians 2 We'll begin reading in verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. Notice, God has revealed them what things? The marvelous wonder of that which God has in store for those that love Him. God has revealed that, but how? By the Spirit. That prepositional phrase, by the Spirit, is a direct grammatical construction reminding us that it's through the agency of the Spirit that God revealed those things about what He has in store for those that love Him. Let's continue reading. Verse number 11, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned." You might notice the Holy Ghost teacheth there in verse number 13. The Holy Spirit, His central work apparently is that of revealing the things of God. He teaches, and that's the way God has delivered to the human family that which is His will in fullness, in completion, and in marvelous majesty. Later in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, we read this marvelous anthem relative to, again, the work of the Spirit. 
there, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Contemplate with me for a moment. It says there, holy men of God penned this Bible that you and I now have. But who was the superintending agent? The Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed then the marvelous book we call the Bible, directing those roughly 40 men to write it over a span of around 1,600 years. And as they put into writing that which was the infallible will of God, that has now been revealed in fullness. That's a marvelous consideration, don't you agree? And the Spirit brought that about. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Some additional comments are such that these passages I've just noted are not the only ones highlighting that revelatory work of the Holy Spirit. Even in the Old Testament, though we might not quickly be able to recall them to mind, I would suggest you contemplate 2 Chronicles 15, beginning in verse 1. There the Spirit of God moved in such a way to deliver to the prophet that which he directly told the king. The Spirit was at work again. In addition to that, in Isaiah 61.1, the very passage our Lord quoted when He preached in His hometown of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, He quoted from that passage which highlights the teaching work of the Spirit. Isn't it true? In Ezekiel 11.24, fairly early in the prophet's labors, again, the Spirit of God was at work delivering to Ezekiel that which was the message to be shared with the people of that day. When we think about then the work of the Spirit in revealing the things of God, hasn't He done a great work? Hadn't He done an incredible work? For this book, we are told, this which is the Word of God endureth forever, 1 Peter 1.25. And that endurance, perhaps, leads us to this final trio of passages. It then heightens our appreciation to ask, are there then some passages in which all three of these members of the Godhead are mentioned at roughly the same time? All three were present, carrying out their efforts and their work, and doing so in a way that we can appreciate their distinctiveness, but yet at the same time see their harmony. The answer is yes. We might well begin in Matthew 3. It's a scene that probably came to your mind already earlier in the lesson this evening. When we think about passages in which all three members of the Godhead occur nearly simultaneously, surely the baptism of our Savior must come to mind. For what took place on that occasion? God the Son was being baptized. God the Father spoke from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And God the Spirit descended like a dove. All three were present, and what a beautiful scene it was. As all three were present on that occasion, in Matthew 3, verses 13 and following, we see their efforts and their work. There are also some additional ones. One of the beauty spots that closes the book of 2 Corinthians is that passage in which we have all three mentioned in the same verse. All three of them, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit mentioned in the single verse. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14. Mention is made about the way in which each could serve to bless that church in Corinth. When you think about that one, that's not the only one. In 1 Peter 1 verse 3, we alluded to this earlier tonight, didn't we? 
For that verse makes mention of the foreknowledge of the Father, but it also mentions the nature of the work of both the Spirit and the Son in that same verse. Finally, there's Jude, verses 20 and 21. There we have one more time all three of them mentioned in such a span of verses. Knowing God. I think we've highlighted through our study of the Word of God this evening the impressiveness of what is involved in knowing God, appreciating the harmony that is them, but seeing the fullness that comes with the distinctiveness of their work. The Father as He plans, the Son as He executes, the Spirit as He reveals, and all of them doing their work with perfection. It may well be that as you contemplate that perfection, there's still so many questions worthy of our consideration. But tonight, time will fail us to look at all of them. It is with that in mind. Let me choose to look at one final section of the lesson before we draw a conclusion. When we think about the Father and the Son and the Spirit, their efforts in this Christian era converge to one reality. It would behoove us to appreciate what that reality is. And I've used it as the title of this slide. According to the New Testament, they converge to the reality you and I appreciate as the gospel. Let's in fact develop that somewhat briefly and then conclude our lesson. God is love. We understand that. 1 John 4 verse 8 still so simply declares the fact that he who loves does not know God, for God is love. And yet that love of God is manifested. It is presented and seen in ways that develops exactly like this. One by one, look at how the verses proceed. The work of the Godhead, the greatness of all that is the Spirit and the Son and the Father, emanate in the reality of this gospel. 1 Timothy 1 verse 11 as well as 1 Peter 4 17 remind us that those who don't obey the gospel, those who in fact reject and rebel against it, are doomed. But the thought of that gospel and who made it available and how it was made available takes us directly to this. It's called the gospel of God in those first verses that I just now mentioned. But it's also called the gospel of Jesus Christ in John 14, 26 and the first paragraph of 1 Corinthians 15. It's the same gospel, but it's called the gospel of Christ on one hand and the gospel of God on another. As you think about the nature of calling it both, it's not two different gospels. It's one and the same, and that work of the Spirit in revealing that gospel and the work of the Son in making that gospel a reality by His death on the cross and the doctrine that He revealed leads us to notice that the work of the Holy Spirit in revealing it centers and focuses on that beautiful gospel. No wonder in Acts 1 verse 8, as well as 1 Peter 1 verse 12, it is there spoken of as that which the Spirit has brought and made available the gospel. It certainly appears that the convergence in all of time relative to what God the Father has planned and what God the Son has executed and what God the Spirit has revealed focuses on that beautiful message you're perhaps holding in your lap tonight. The gospel. Our obedience to it, the blessings that it brings, the rewards that it offers, and the consequences for rejecting it. 
the fullness of what God has to reveal to you and me centers in it. No wonder these final comments are these. We've now come full circle. When Joey read earlier in our service tonight from Hebrews chapter 8, it's now time to revisit that passage and now look at what knowing God means. Hebrews chapter 8. We won't read all of that chapter, but just as a word of background, Hebrews 8 verses 1 and following identify for us the remarkable truth that there is a pattern to be obeyed. Moses had to obey it, Hebrews 8 verse 5. The tabernacle and all that went with it had to be made according to the pattern. But then there's a smooth transition from that into the covenant because now we live under a better one. It's not that old law of Moses, for we have a better covenant based on better promises. And it's in that very context the Hebrew writer quotes from Jeremiah 31 about knowing God. And you and I have it in the gospel. Let's look again at verses 10 and 11. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. You and I are the blessed beneficiaries of that text. We live beneath this new covenant. We serve in it, and it's the gospel. You and I have the tremendous revelation of the Spirit telling us of what knowing God is all about. Have you obeyed the gospel then? Your eternal destiny hinges on it. God the Son came to pay the way that you might be saved, and the Spirit has revealed it. Don't reject it. Don't rebel against it. We find these two statements. 1 Timothy 2.4 still tells to us that God will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. God... That's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God wants everybody to be saved, but sadly all men won't be saved because all men won't obey the gospel. All men won't live faithfully to it. All men won't in fact die in the Lord, Revelation 14, 13. And thus we read in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but it's long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Maybe in our interest to know God, we've learned a great deal or have been reminded of a great deal tonight. And maybe we can summarize it like this. Knowing God is absolutely essential. If we don't know Him, we can't be saved. And that knowledge of Him appears to begin with a knowledge of the Godhead. God the Father and His work in planning. God the Son and His work in executing. God the Spirit, His work in revealing. And how all of that converges to the gospel. And how it's incumbent upon us to obey it. Have you attended to that need in your life? If you've never obeyed that gospel initially, why not tonight? You must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If you have attended to that at some former moment in life, but tonight, tonight, you know that you don't know God the way you should because your knowledge hasn't matured. You haven't, in fact, increased in that knowledge. Colossians 1 verse 10. And you perhaps would wish to ask for prayers of brethren. 
you would wish to perhaps confess error, we'd be honored to pray with you and for you. And you'd be set on course again to increase in your knowledge of God. If we could help you in that way tonight, we would urge you to come and do so at once. While together we stand and while we sing.